Uh, my name is Daniel Ward. I'm one of the associate pastors here at Pentry Oaks. Uh, Nathan asked me to preach this morning because I think he doesn't want Exodus to finish, so he's just kind of taking the can down the road. So we're going to do something else today. No, just kidding. Sorry, Nathan. Uh, last night, I was talking to my wife about my sermon, and I said, I'm nervous uh, about it. I just can't, I can't get my, there's so many nuances and different things and specific scenarios for people and how it applies, and there's, you know, different caveats, and, and she said very wisely that Paul did not write any caveats into the text. So she said, just preach it. And so that is my goal this morning, to preach what Paul wrote. Uh, we are going to be in Titus chapter 2. Uh, if you would turn to Titus chapter 2, verse 11, and stand, please, in honor of the reading of God's word. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions, and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Let's pray. Lord God, um, Jesus, you are so kind, so gracious, so wonderful to us. Um, the way that you interact with us is so different than the way that we interact with each other in the world. Uh, we, we are so grateful that you are the God you are, that you uh, train us by grace, Lord, that you draw us to yourself. Lord, as I uh, come to this text and desire to preach it faithfully, I ask that you would use your Holy Spirit to help me do that well. Uh, Lord, that I would be out of the way and that your text, your scripture would shine through, that it would glorify your Son, honor the Father, Lord, that the Holy Spirit would work in the hearts and lives of everyone here this morning, including myself. We thank you for your word. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Let me have a seat, thank you. Um, jumping into the middle of a book like this is a little difficult, so I wanna give you just a, a quick bit of context for what's going on uh, in the book of Titus. Um, it's written, of course, from Paul to Titus, and Titus has been left on the island of Crete. It's a big island in the middle of the Mediterranean, uh, and the people of Crete uh, don't have a, a super good reputation. Um, Paul mentions as much in the book, uh, but even the Romans and the Greeks uh, did not think too highly of the Cretans. Think of it, uh, I, you know that ride at Disneyland, uh, Pirates of the Caribbean, and then they made a movie from it and all of that, and, you, and you, there's just this carousing and uh, lawlessness that's going on in the island. I think of Crete sort of in those terms. It's, it's just this wild place that, uh, that kind of people do what they want. Um, and they're not moral people by any, by any stretch. But we, we saw in Acts chapter two, if you read it carefully, during Pentecost, it mentions a whole bunch of different peoples who are there. And one of them that they mentions are the Cretans. So the Cretans were there at Pentecost. And presumably, believers and uh, unbelievers or Jews who were unbelieving, all went back from Pentecost back to Crete. And so there are Christians roaming about uh, this island. Um, and I, presumably, they started to form into some sort of congregation looking something like a church, uh, but it was still a little bit haphazard, a little bit unorganized. 
Um, there's some indication that Paul went there uh, at some point with Titus, and at that point he left him there and said, hey, Titus, put this place into order. There is chaos everywhere. The churches are disorganized. Uh, they don't have proper leadership. They don't have good doctrine. Uh, and he leaves them. He leaves Titus there to establish order. Um, and there's much we could say just in that note right there about what it means to be a church, what it means to be a missionary and plant a church. Um, but I'll leave that for, for Mike Owens to take care of someday. Uh, but here, here we have Titus setting into order the Cretan churches. And he covers, Paul writes him a letter following up later on and, and encourages him and exhorts him to continue on. And he does a number of things. It's nicely divided into to three chapters for us. But Paul, I think, really did have three sections he wanted to look at. He first addresses the elders and the qualifications of an elder and how that contradicts false teachers. And, and, and the more false teachers you have, the more elders you need to fight and battle against them. And so he covers that in chapter one. And then in chapter two, he talks about the home life. What, is, what are people supposed to do? How are they supposed to act at home? Presumably these Cretans are used to doing all sorts of unlawful things even in their own homes or their place of business or what have you. Uh, and, and Paul's correcting, hey, don't forget to, to encourage them to not act that way. And then in chapter three, he covers societal things, uh, how you interact with the government, how you interact out in the, the working world, all these, these sort of things. And so uh, Paul is, is laying out very quickly and very briefly for Titus instruction and encouragement to continue on teaching and encouraging these people, these Cretans who are largely unlawful. And what's interesting what, with Paul is he never gives instruction apart from sound doctrine. And so he will give commands and say, do this thing. And he always ties it in with the gospel. He never separates it or divorces it from the gospel. He's always tying those two things together. And that's the why he can make those commands. Because without that, he's just making commands that human beings have to then work hard to accomplish. But he, he connects it to the gospel and gives it the power that it needs and the ability for us to be able to respond and accomplish those commands, those imperatives, as, you were, as it were. Uh, what's interesting about Titus as well is this book, he, he does it in the reverse. Usually he, he'll give the theological undertones, the gospel reasons for why you should act a certain way, and then he'll give the commands of, okay, now do this. In Titus, he flips it, and he says, okay, do this, and then because of, and here's how you can. Do these commands because of the gospel, in short. And so we pick up here in Titus chapter 2, and he's already listed out in verses 1 through 10 a series of imperatives. Act this way, do these things. And he comes to verse 11, and it is the reasons we can do those things. And we start here in verse 11. It says, For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. My sermon this morning, uh, I don't, I don't want to say it has three points. It's more three, you know, categories, I guess. The first one is being trained by grace. The second one, for you who take notes, you like a good outline, motivated by hope. And the third one, for good works. So we are being trained by grace and motivated by hope for good works. So we have here again, for the grace of God has appeared 
That is, being unveiled. God's grace has never ceased to exist. It isn't as though it wasn't there and then all of a sudden now it is here. God's grace has always been there, but the, the, uh, the hidden nature of it has been, the mystery of it has been revealed in Christ Jesus, right? Jesus came, suffered on the cross, died for our sins, rose from the dead, offered free salvation to all people. This is the gospel news. This is the grace of God offered to all humanity and it is revealed now through Jesus Christ. The Old Testament prophets looked forward to this. The Old Testament believers longed for this to, to happen. Jesus comes, fulfills it. It is revealed to us for salvation. And so what is this salvation from? Well, we had the law. We have Exodus and the law. And the law says, obey this way and be blessed. Disobey and be punished. That's the law. That's how it works. If you do it, if you do the right thing, you're fine. If you do the wrong thing, you get a punishment. That's the way the law works. And he says that the grace of God has been revealed. And grace is very different than the law. Grace says that you are saved, not because of anything you did, but because of what Jesus did. And that that salvation is irrevocable. That you can't lose it. That that no matter what, God will always look on you favorably. That he isn't going to punish you for your sins. It's a very different way than the law. The law says you will get punished for your sins. And grace says, no, Christ was punished for your sins. You are now free from that. And we understand this in the terms of salvation, right? Here in this congregation, you hear it preached faithfully over and over and over again that we are saved by grace alone and that we are now free from the law. But he says an interesting thing in here in verse 12. Look at verse 12. It says, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. So we put this thing together. It has this little uh, a comma, bringing salvation for all people. But he says, for the grace of God has appeared, training us to renounce, and it goes on. So grace, if we can shorten it down and cut some of those things out and put it together, it says grace trains us. What does that mean, that grace trains us? Well, what is grace? Grace is simply getting what we don't deserve, right? It's a gift, something we don't deserve. What does it mean to be trained? Well, I think of training in, in this term, stop doing what is natural and easy and start doing what is contrary and difficult. Right? You think about tra training in terms of a physical activity, maybe you need to train for a marathon or something like that. Your natural inclination is to sit, be lazy on the couch, eat whatever you want. When you train, you get out of that, you go, you work hard, you run, you exercise, you eat healthy, you train for your marathon. My, my, uh, one of my daughters recently uh, had a spelling bee, she had to train for it. And as she trained, she was looking at words, learning how to spell them, practicing them. What's normal and easy is to not learn how to spell, not learn the difficult words. And instead, no, her mother said, no, you need to train for the spelling bee to learn these words and to do well. And so she was trained. But how do these things go together? Because grace is getting what you don't deserve, and training is working hard to do what is contrary to your nature. So how do we get trained by grace? I can't really think of an analogy in this world apart from the gospel because the idea is so contrary to the way the world works. The world really doesn't operate this way. 
The world says you work hard and you get what you deserve. If you break a law, you go to jail. Um, I've, I've shared this a, a number of times, I think, uh, from the pulpit. When I worked at Scaled Composites down in Mojave, uh, I once yelled at my boss, and my boss called me into his office because I yelled at him in front of everybody. And he called me into his office, and I said, I was so wrong that I should not have done that. Will you please forgive me? And he said, no. But if it happens again, you will be fired. And that's the way the world works. Perform or be punished. There's no forgiveness. There's no idea of forgiveness. There's no true forgiveness. And there can't be. Because forgiveness is what happens from God. And if you take God away, take God out of the picture, forgiveness can't really happen. You have something that looks similar to forgiveness, but it isn't forgiveness. And so the world operates as best it can, but it fails. Because this is not how God operates. This is not how God operates with his children. The ones he loves, the one he, he cherishes. He doesn't operate this way that you get punished for the things you do wrong. There is, in Christ, unconditional love, unconditional respect from God to his children. He freely will forgive anything. Anything. He will forgive for free. That's the way God operates. He allows us the freedom to mess up, to reject him, to sin, to disobey. He allows us to do that. And in his grace, he freely forgives over and over and over again, once for all and continually through our lives. That's how he operates with his children. And this is contrary to the way the world works. He will do whatever is necessary to draw us back to himself. Sometimes it's hurt, it hurts because we're stubborn, right? Sometimes it's sweet because we're hurting. But he's so wise, he knows exactly what he needs to do to bring us back to himself. The world, when we mess up, pushes us away, rejects us, shuns us, kicks us out. The Lord, when we, when we mess up, he draws us near to himself. Sometimes it's painful because we try to attach ourselves so hard to the world and it takes more to pull us away from that, but he's always graciously drawing us to himself. And so as we respond to this abundance of grace, we are trained. We're trained to un renounce ungodliness. Look at Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions as the grace of God overflows on us in our lives, we look at the, 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 the sin of the world and it becomes more and more repulsive to us. We want nothing to do with it. The pure, white goodness of God is so desirable and as God freely gives it to us more and more as we come closer and closer to him, the world just becomes more and more repulsive. And so we are trained away from ungodliness towards God's righteousness by grace as he forgives over and over again. And on the positive side, we learn self-control. That we gain control over our sinful flesh and say, no, I'm not doing what I 
sinfully desire. Instead, I'm going to follow God because I know it is so much better for me. And we gain mastery over our sinful flesh. Before Christ came into our life, we tried to master the flesh and we failed. But with grace, we're able to overcome our sinful flesh. We learn uprightness. We love to follow the law. The law is no longer a burden to us, but a joy to obey God. His goodness is so alluring, so drawing to us that we want to obey him. So when Paul makes these commands throughout Titus, these are welcome instructions. Thank you, Paul, for telling me what to do. I didn't know what to do. I, I, just, I grew up in the sinful habits and this is all I ever knew. Thank you for telling me what God wants me to do. I'm grateful. I'm going to do it. I love it. David says, I love your law. It's a comfort to me. I don't know what to do apart. Now you give me the law. Oh, thank you. I, can, I, I want to follow that. It's not, a, it's not a burden to me. In the world's terms, it's not a law to me. It's a grace to me. And our lives become marked by godliness. We become more and more like our creator, the one who saved us by his grace. And we love to receive grace, don't we? We love it when people show us grace. We love it when God shows us grace. But we have a hard time giving it out. Because being trained by grace is a slow and patient process. And God is so good at it. He's so patient with us. But we are not so patient with others, are we? We try to apply grace and train people by grace, freely forgiving, but then it doesn't work right away. We grow impatient. And so we start to apply the law because the law is quick, right? Hey, you messed up? Here's your punishment. I'm gonna force you back in line. Instead of freely forgiving any trespass, any trespass. That's how God operates. Being long-suffering as others hurt us. How long will we suffer with somebody who hurts us? Not very long. How long does Christ suffer with us? He's long-suffering. So we try to apply the law to others. All right, we say, here's the standard. Get in line or get out of the way. We'll do this in our marriages. We make rules that are, we expect our, our spouses to follow. And when they don't follow it, and we usually don't write these things down, and then they don't follow the rules, and so we punish them for it. Whether it's physically, you know, we take something away, or emotionally we withdraw from them, or uh, we try and uh, talk badly about them to other people. Whatever, it, whatever tactic it is we try to apply to, to bring our spouse into control, it's all sinful. It isn't the way God operates. He operates by grace, freely forgiving constantly over and over again. We'll do this in the church sometimes. Um, we don't mean to, but we do it. We set a standard for what it means to be a good Christian. 
you read your Bible this often, you, do, you go to church this often, you, you help out in this ministry, that ministry, uh, you don't do this, you do do that, and here's the standard for what it means to be a good Christian, and all of us are all over the place. Some of us are like standards way down here, others of us hold it way up here, and it's all where we think you ought to be, and then we hold others to that, and then when they don't perform, we shun them, we talk about them behind their back, we make them feel guilty for not performing to the standards that we've set, It's death. It's death to a church. It's death to a marriage. Christ is so patient. He's instructing us constantly, training us by grace, sometimes gently, sometimes sternly, but always in proportion to what we need. Some will argue that Christians will take advantage of grace. Right? If we just, we just say, hey, we're just going to forgive anything. It doesn't matter. We'll just Christians, hey, we're going to forgive everything that you do. Then their fear is, well, then they'll just do whatever they want. They're just going to sin. We need to make rules to enforce them, to keep them in line. Paul answered this, didn't he? In Romans 6, 1 through 2, he says, What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Christians aren't this way to take advantage of grace. They love grace. They're trained by grace. We don't have to worry about making a bunch of rules for Christians to follow. That's what the Holy Spirit's job is inside of you, to spur you on, to draw you closer to Christ, to to train you in godliness. He doesn't need our help. We trust the Holy Spirit, the work inside of the Holy Spirit, and the, the work of the Holy Spirit inside of your heart. This is not the way the man. This is not the way man operates, but the way God operates. And if someone continues to reject God's grace, to grieve the Holy Spirit, God knows how to handle that. We let him do it. I'm not going to go there, but First Corinthians five five: Turn him over for the destruction of his flesh, that his soul may be saved. He knows how to handle it. We don't need to interfere. Because Galatians 5, 1 through 2 says, For freedom Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. If you accept circumcision, Christ will be of no advantage to you. Skipped a little spot in there. If we start reapplying law to ourselves as believers who have softened hearts it will harden our heart it will destroy us it will cripple us don't return to the frustrations of the law the law just pointed out that we couldn't do it and so now as grace filled believers why would we return back to the law it's ridiculous it's nonsensical it's deadly but it's our natural inclination to return to the law it's what we used to know We don't want to find comfort in the swamps of our former ways. Um, We do this, though. We try. Uh, I think of the ways that I've heard people and I've experienced in my own life of trying to create laws in my life. Uh, I love what, what Ross said this morning about reading the Bible and all of the benefits of it. But sometimes we take that and say, well, I know I'm supposed to do it. I don't really want to do it. I don't really like doing it, so I'm just going to make it happen and uh, suck it up. Uh, 
We create, take a Bible reading plan, one-year plan. Who said it had to be a year? I don't know. It doesn't have to be a year. And we just we stick to it. We've created a law. And eventually, you find, like you found before Christ, that you can't keep the law. And you end up messing it up anyway. Uh, there's a wonderful book by Don Whitney called Spiritual Disciplines, and it lays out all these wonderful things you can do as a Christian um, Bible reading, meditation on scripture, praying the Bible, uh, fasting. Uh, he lays out all these different things and, and I've take, gone through this book with a number of people and their response usually at the end of it is, well, I got a lot of things to do. I better buckle up and get going. And they make a law out of it. And they just inevitably find out really bad at keeping the law. Coming to church um, becomes a law for some people. It's no longer a joy that responds to the Christ. To, I want to just be there with God's people and to worship the Lord. It becomes a law, a duty. I have to do it, whether I want to or not, and I don't want to. You make a law out of it, and you find again that you're really bad at keeping the law. And the people who make a law out of coming to church, ironically, end up coming less than those who don't make it a law, and instead are trained by grace. Now notice, I don't say that those, you shouldn't do those things. Those things are good to do and good for you to do. But when you make it a law that you have to do it or else you'll be punished, how many of us think that way? If I don't read my Bible every day, I'm gonna have a bad day. I hear you laughing because you know that that's, you felt that way. Ah, oh, man, I, I stubbed my toe this morning when I got up because I didn't read my Bible first. We think this way, right? That we create these laws that God never, nowhere in his word does he say, before you get out of bed, you better read the Bible or you're gonna have a bad day. There's no such law. We've made these things up. So, we're to be trained by grace as God freely forgives. But there's more. It was Jesus' first coming that allows us to be trained by grace. But Jesus is coming again. And that motivates us. Look at verse, end of verse 12, beginning of verse 13. And godly lives, we're living godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. By the way, I think God and Savior Jesus Christ there is describing the one person, Jesus Christ. And he's very clearly saying he is God. But we won't get distracted on that this morning. Instead, we will focus on the second coming of Jesus and that it creates hope in us. How does it create hope? We know the grace that we've experienced now. Right? You have been freely forgiven and you've been given the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit, it says in Ephesians 1, 13 through 14, you were sealed with the promised Holy Spirit who is the guarantee of your inheritance. He is guaranteeing, because you have the Holy Spirit, is guaranteed of a future inheritance. That is, we hope for the things that are in the future. What we have now is the basis for our hope in the future. It means we have lots of grace right now, and we are going to get even more grace in the future. The Holy Spirit that we have right now is the promise of the future inheritance. And so we hope looking forward. 
we are able to live godly lives in the present age, right now, because of what Jesus Christ did. And it leaves us wanting more, doesn't it? As we respond to grace and we are trained by it and we see the goodness of what it is to live a godly life that honors the Lord and how much better that is, we are trained to want more of it. And we have a guarantee of more of it in the Holy Spirit. And so we desire more grace. And we look forward to heaven when grace will just be unloaded in an amount that we can't even fathom in this moment. But we know it's coming. And it's tied to what is right now. And so we want more of the unencumbered relationship with God the Father through the Holy, through the Son. And there's rewards in heaven. I don't understand how we can have rewards in heaven. It's written about all through Scripture and it doesn't detail what they are. We know that we'll have a relationship with Christ. That's part of it. We'll have relationship with believers who have also professed faith. And, but there seems to be something more. And these uh, rewards in heaven, somehow, and I can't fathom this because of my sinful, corrupt flesh, somehow the rewards of heaven we will be able to so thoroughly enjoy and glorify God perfectly. It seems like in this world, all we can do when we, when we enjoy something, there's so much sin corrupted in it. We're like, how can we have a thing that isn't God himself and yet perfectly glorify God in it? I don't know. I can't, I'm so sinful, I can't even fathom that. But in heaven, all that is God has created, we will enjoy perfectly in perfect glorification of him. I don't get it, but it's gonna be awesome. And we have hope for this. And we look forward to it. And this motivates us to continue to renounce the temporary of this world and to strive on for the eternal. As we grow in godliness, we continue to get closer to God. And for us as believers, that's the ultimate goal, right? To get closer to God. And he's coming to save us out of this world, this sinful world. And so look at verse 14. It says, Who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession. Pause. Here's the irony of this. Look, at, look it says, Who redeem us from all lawlessness. Isn't this ironic? That God is training us by grace, removing us from the requirement of the law, and what does that create, make us do? It makes us fulfill the law. And the world looks at this and says, I'm going to try harder to do better, to fulfill the law, to obey all of the things, and they fail. And here we are, and God says, stop it. I'm going to go ahead and fulfill the law. I will give you all of the grace, and I'm going to train you by grace. And guess what? As a result of that, you're now able to better keep the law than you were before. And so the law is good. And this is a testimony to the world as they continue to struggle and fight and fail to keep the law. And here we are as believers who have no requirement to keep the law, keeping the law that they can't keep themselves. The irony, the beauty of it, the glory of God in it. 
And we, as we are better able to not only obey God's law, but we're able to obey the government's law or our boss's laws or our parents' laws. As we follow Christ and are trained by grace, we better keep the law. And this is a testimony to unbelievers who look at it and say, why are you so good? The grace of God. Well, I need to try harder to do better. No, no, you need grace in your life. That is the only way you have any chance. And so it gives us opportunity for the gospel. And this is what Paul is teaching to Titus, to teach the Cretans. Be an example in your community of what it means to be trained by grace so that they will come to faith and they will see the hope that is in you that is motivating you and want it or be condemned by it, one of the two. And as you have opportunity, you share the gospel, the hope that is in you, the grace that you've received. But hope, for hope's sake, is not anything. Without fruit, it's nothing. And so James says, uh, faith without works is dead, right? And so what does our faith produce? Faith produces hope. And that hope produces good works. Don't get it confused. Don't put it in the wrong order. If you put it in the wrong order, you end up with heresy. Our good works produces faith, or our good works produces salvation. Nonsense. No. Our salvation produces hope, and that hope gives us the desire and the zeal, as he says, for good works. So we don't do work, good works to earn grace. You can't earn grace. It's an oxymoron or what is that, you know, something moronic about it. To earn a gift, silly. But it makes us zealous for good works. Look at verse, um, chapter two, verse uh, seven and eight. It says, show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works and in your teaching show integrity, dignity, and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame having nothing evil to say about us. What's he talking about? He said, the world is watching you. How do you respond to the grace and the hope? You respond with good works. And the world says, I like good works. That sounds, that's beneficial to me. I want some more of that. Say, okay, I'll give you some more of that. Where is that coming from? Let me tell you about it. It gives you opportunity for the gospel. When we are zealous for good works, so come to the, the, where the rubber starts to meet the road for us. What are good works? Well, one aspect of it is good behavior, and he's detailed that in verses 1 through 10. We don't have time to go through it. I encourage you to read that on your own later on, because Paul will lay out, older men, do this. Younger men, do this. Older women, do this. Younger women, do this. Um, servants, do this. And he lays out how everyone should behave. And as a believer, you respond to that and say, great, thank you for telling me. I was wondering what I was supposed to do. I'd love to do it. It's life to us. Our response is yes and amen. Tell me what to do. It's not a burden because you have Christ in you to do it. And you know that if you mess it up, God will freely forgive you and has already forgiven you. And so there's no condemnation. And so we're free to mess it up, 
try again and be trained? And so our behavior is the first thing. How do we act towards others? How do we respond to God? Um, If you look at verse 10, chapter three, verse 10 and 11, it says, as for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with him. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. These are harsh words. If you are divisive, if you are contentious, if you are someone who likes to just stir the pot for the sake of stirring the pot, this is not good for you. It's not a good work. A good work is to be unified, to encourage those who are hurting, to encourage those who are struggling. Hey, you can do it. Come on, you can do it. It says in verse two, three, two, it says, speak evil of no one. And that would include our ministries in our church. Let's not do this. There's different ministries doing different things, different ways than you might think about it. Don't speak evil of them. Encourage that in ministry. Encourage that person. Encourage that leader. It's hard. It's hard to lead. We don't need to be tearing each other down, hurting each other, attacking other believers. Oh, they said this one wrong thing and now we're not going to ever talk to them again. Oh, man. Trained by grace. Ah, man. Shouldn't have said that, but you know what? I still love you. You're still a brother, sister in Christ. Look at verse 14. This is really cool. Um, Chapter three, verse 14, it says, let our people learn to devote themselves to good works so as to help cases of urgent need and not be unfruitful. This is really a cool idea. He says, get ready to be generous. Uh, we, we tend to think of it more um, sporadically, I think. Hey, there's a need. Do I have any money? No, I don't have any money. I can't help you. I'm sorry. Do I have, there's a need. Oh, yeah, I've got a couple bucks. I guess I can give it to you or whatever. We think of it, you know, in terms of, uh, in terms of uh, spontaneity, giving. But he says to be ready, to be ready for good works. When we talk about our finances, that means you can set aside money Hey, there's not a need I see right now. I don't know, there's probably stuff going on, but I don't see a need right now. But I've got a little bit of extra money. I'm gonna set that aside. I'm gonna make a separate bank account where this is like my own personal benevolence fund that I'm just gonna put money in there and I'm gonna be looking for opportunities to give it away. And I'm gonna see a need and I'm, I've already got money set aside. Boom, I'm just gonna give it generously. Right? You, can, you can do that. You don't have to give it all to the church and say, all right, church, you guys just decide what to do with the money. You can do that in your own, in your own account. It's awesome. Um, we, there's lots of opportunities that will be coming up. We've got some cross-cultural workers that are getting trained right now. They're going to come back, and they're going to need to raise a lot of money. Um, they're going to need a one-time gift, and they're going to need monthly support after that. You can start saving right now and putting money aside. It's really hard to give it to them right now. It's, it's not easy. But there will come a time, and you can set money aside, and you can have however much in the bank, and when they come back, you say, hey, there you go, you got it. I've been saving this for you, ready to do good work. I'm zealous and eager for what you're doing. Um, We are hoping, we've been talking about this for a while, we're hoping to build more buildings here. Our classrooms are all packed out. Um, Right now, we're still in the planning phases, but that doesn't mean that you can't start saving, setting money aside, and be like, all right, when when they pull the trigger and they're ready to go, I've got money ready to go too. I'm zealous, I'm eager for good works. 
Hopefully you're a part of a growth group, midweek Bible study. Um, there are, that is where we want people to serve one another, to know what's going on intimately in each other's lives so that when needs arise, they don't have to come and call up Craig and say, hey, I have a need, and Craig's gotta go find somebody else in the church. And it get, Inside of your growth groups, as you know each other, there will, needs will come up. And if you are ready and eager, you'll be able to meet that need. You're the first one in line. Hey, no, 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 I got it, I got it, I got it. And so you've set money aside. You've set time aside. Your schedule's not so packed out that if a need arises, you say, I can't, I'm too busy. You're not ready. Paul says, hey, the grace of God, you should be ready for good works. Zealous, eager, first in line. Hey, there's a need, I'm first in line, I'm ready to go, I wanna do this. And it's a testimony to the world. They don't think this way. This happened to me um, not that long ago. It was, it was a bit ago. I, my van, if you've heard it, it's awesome. Um, the tires on it were bald, and uh, and somebody came up into the park, coming came up to me in the parking lot and said, "Hey, uh, you need new tires." I said, "Yeah, I know." He's like, "Are you gonna buy them?" I'm like, "Well, the cars. I don't know if it's gonna make it. I don't know if I want to put the money in. It's pretty expensive." He's like, "Oh, hold on. Hey, here's some money." go get new tires. Okay, okay, I'll go there right now. And I got new tires. But he was ready. He had cash on hand waiting for an opportunity and he saw it and he took it. He was looking. Like he had to go up to me and say, hey, I think you have a need. I said, oh yeah, I kind of have a need. Okay, good, I want to fulfill it. Is that your heart? To say, man, I'm looking. I'm, I'm, on, I'm on the prowl for a, something good to do because of the grace that I've been shown, because of the hope. I know this world is temporary and the things here, I don't need to hold on to these. I've got hope. I'm motivated for good works. Is that you? Are you ready for good works? Are you eager? Are you zealous for good works? Is your heart prepared? Is your time, your money, resources prepared for good works? You living in a manner that is ready to share the gospel at, the moment, at a moment's notice. If not, Hey, guess what? There's grace. See, my heart is not there. I have not been doing that. God says, hey, that's okay. I forgive you. Turn and do the right thing. Oh, okay, is that it? You're gonna, you're gonna punish me? You're gonna make me sick? No, 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 no. Are you, gonna, are you gonna take something away from me? No, what are you talking about? No, just stop it. This grace, I forgive you. It means that you're not punished for it. I forgive you. Trained by grace. Oh, you're just gonna forgive me for nothing? Yes. We don't do this with each other and I think we have, that's why it makes it so hard for us to understand how God could do that with us. We, <laughs> we don't treat each other this way. We say, you messed up, now you're gonna have to pay for it. And we just can't fathom how God could do that to us and he says, I just want you to know that you're forgiven. Be trained by Grace. The hope that's coming motivates us, lets us go, let, let us, helps us to let go of this world, latch on to the future hope of salvation and the grace that will be multiplied so much more than we have even right now, and there's so much we have right now. So if that's not you, simply repent and turn. There's grace. Let's pray. Lord God, man, you are so gracious and kind to us. Um, God, we don't deserve it, and that's the beauty of it. 
We can't earn it. And that's your genius. That you saved us for good works. Not because of good works, but for good works. So that we could be a light to the world. Lord, help us to do that this week. To be a light to the world. Give us those opportunities as we respond and obey your word that others would ask and we would tell them boldly of the reason we have grace, the reason that we have hope, the reason we love to do good works. It's because of all of the grace that you've poured out on us. Train us by this, Lord. We ask in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Jude 24, now to him who is able to keep you from stumbling and present, or to present you blameless before the presence of his glory with great joy, to the only God, our Savior, through Jesus Christ our Lord, be glory, majesty, dominion, and authority before all time and now and forever. Amen. Amen. You're dismissed. Have a good Sunday.